Cadillac is the place to where the refuge church is being planted. Uh, and so from the beginning, they've been asking these questions. What does it mean for us to be planted in Cadillac? They've been asking the questions, what, what space are we going to have? Where is ministry going to happen? And, and yes, these are logistic questions, but they're, they're ministry questions. Uh, so I'm just going to invite Eric to come up, and he's just going to give a quick update on this, this question of, of place, of space, and then, then we're going to pray together. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, so uh, Cadillac. Cadillac is where we're at. Uh, a lot of you have driven through it. Maybe not so many of you have stopped to say hello. Um, you know, a lot of you, as you're heading downstate or to Chicago or wherever you might be going, uh, you pass in between the lakes, that bridge, and that's about as much of Cadillac as you might see. You see our gas stations, our McDonald's, um, the little uh, bakery over there. Uh, but Cadillac is actually a, a wonderful city that I've fallen in love with uh, over the last four years that I've been living there. Uh, population of about 11,000. The area, you could say, it's not a metropolitan area by any means, but it, it, the area is about 35,000 people who all kind of come toward Cadillac as their city center, and it's a great place. And uh, as you've been hearing updates along the way, you, you know that we have been praying for a location to meet in. Uh, you, if, if you know this church plants, we don't start off on a massive budget, do we? Uh, we? We can't afford necessarily to build a building like this right from the get-go, and it takes us a while to get established. And one of the most anxiety-inducing experiences of that is, oh no, we're just months away from launching. Where are we going to meet? Where are we going to meet? And you guys have been praying for that. And the good news is that we have a meeting location. Uh, we are going to be launching on October 31st. Uh, at Franklin Elementary School, right in downtown Cadillac. If you know where the hospital is, it's just a block away and nestled in one of the oldest neighborhoods uh, of Cadillac. It's a perfect location for us to reach out to our city. And I, I just want to share with you the story of how that happened. We were looking at leases. We were, looking, we were hoping that different event centers would lower their rates for us so that they were actually affordable. And we weren't finding anything that met our budget, and we were worried we're going to have to raise a lot more money to make it happen. And then, of course, with COVID, uh, it limits you know, the possibilities of where we could reach out to. And I had always had in the back of my mind that meeting in a school would be a great place, uh, a great place that people are familiar with. It's not that intimidating. Everyone's been in it before. And, uh, but I was worried that within this COVID season and the restrictions and the lockdowns that we've been having, like, I can't start that conversation too early right? Like if I had started that conversation in April or February, uh, it, it would have been an immediate no. And so I waited, and then in June, I reached out, thinking it was kind of my last opportunity to reach them. Uh, kids were out of school, and, uh, and I said, hey, what do you think about us renting one of your buildings? And the answer that I was expecting was, well, we've got to take that to the school board. Three months, four months of meetings and presentations and proving to people that we're not a cult. Um, and uh, and I, th I thought that it was going to be kind of like a deadline day deal, right? Yes or no, and if it's a no, we don't have a backup option, and that was my greatest fear. 24 hours after I made the first phone call, I got a phone call back from the person who handles their facility rentals and said, I spoke with the superintendent, and she says, why don't you go take a tour of all of our buildings and pick out whatever room you want? and we are really, really sorry to have to charge you $90 a week. <laughs> and I said, you're forgiven. <laughs> I, that number is significantly less than what we ever thought we would have to raise in our first year for a facility. Significantly less. It is an amazing answer to prayers. Now, buildings are not the church, but buildings are where the church meets, and we need facilities like this, and this is a massive answer to prayers. So thank you for praying for that. We're so excited to do that, and, and like I said, we launch uh, pretty soon, October 31st at Franklin Elementary School. And is it correct that you guys have office space at a Methodist church in the area, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, we, we don't have office space right now. We've been working out of our homes, and Justin has two young kids, and I have two young kids at home, too, and trying to get work. It, well, a lot of you know this experience now, right? <laughs> um, but it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun, and uh, work's been sluggish. And so we reached out. I'm part of a ministerial association in the area of about 20 pastors, and I reached out to them. And the United Methodist Church in town 
um, who I, I would say we don't share a ton in common with them in, in style and some doctrinal issues, but like they love us. They are passionate about it, and they said, hey, we've got this large Sunday school room that can easily fit both of you. How about we rent it to you for a really affordable rate? And so uh, hopefully we move in this week. Yeah, it's great to have uh, partners in the gospel across different lines that might divide us on occasion, but to find our unity in the gospel and partnership in that. We just want to take some time and pray, celebrate with them, uh, lift up this space uh, to God. So would you, would you pray with me? Father God, we praise you this morning. We give you thanks uh, for who you are. And as we, we believe this truth, God, that you are faithful, uh, that you care, you are our shepherd and our father who, who knows the little details uh, Lord, we know and we believe that um, you have a mission in this world of helping people uh, come to know you and to find life in you through Jesus. You are about the work of renewing all things. That work extends to Cadillac. And so we know these things, um, and yet we're still blown away when we see uh, you work. And so we want to praise you and we want to give you thanks uh, for providing uh, the space uh, where the Refuge Church is going to meet. Uh, we praise you and thank you for providing office space for Eric and Justin. Uh, and God, as they uh, continue to move towards this and as they, they visualize what the space is going to look like, uh, as they get the equipment that they need for it, uh, as they um, kind of take up residence, Father, we, we commit that space to you. And we ask, Father, that as, as they... Um, welcome people in your name uh, as they uh, preach the good news of Jesus, as they um, lean into it and press into it in song and in liturgy, uh, and Lord, that you would produce a gospel culture in that building. And Lord, that, that men and women and children would hear about your lavish, extravagant love in Jesus towards them at that place. Lord, as there's, there's bound to be... Um, uh, challenges and inconveniences. Um, Lord, we just commit those to you. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would even now be preparing them, uh, giving them just this uh, rootedness in the fact that you have gone before them and that you are with them even now. So thank you again for how you are moving uh, in uh, and through the Refuge Church. Would you continue to do that? Would you continue, Father, to uh, just give them a sense of contentedness because they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, well, um, uh, about a year ago, Justin and I were, uh, and our families, we went on a weekend getaway over at Lake Ann Camp up here, just west of here, and, and to, we wanted to just take some time to spend, spend it in prayer and spend it dreaming about what this church plant would be all about. And uh, one of those days, Justin and I went to Lake Ann Camp's uh, boardroom, and they have this giant whiteboard there, and we locked ourselves in that room for the day, and uh, we divided up the, the, the whiteboard in half. Uh, me on the left, Justin on the right, and we put on some music, and then we started writing. Every word, every phrase that kind of captured the ideas that we had in our head about what we wanted this church plant to be all about. And, and then after an hour or so of doing that, we, we stepped back and then we, for the first time, looked at each other's side of the board to see what did we have in common? What were the things that were jumping uh, off, off this board? And, uh, and three words, or, or maybe concepts, kept showing up. Uh, three words, belong, discover, and transform. Belong, discover, and transform. And those three words have kind of become like a, a shorthand for what our mission statement as a church is. And, and so for the next three weeks, as a way of introducing the Refuge Church to you, our mother church, Sojourn, uh, we're, we're going to camp out here with those three words and kind of use them as springboards into uh, helping you understand what makes us tick, what's our DNA, what is our mission and vision. And to help us do that, we're going to go to the passages in the Bible that inspired those three words. And so um, today we begin with that first word, belong. And to help us do that, we're going to look at a passage, uh, from, passage from Matthew chapter 9 about that. Uh, my friend Abby's going to come on up. 
Uh, you might have seen her singing in the back there, playing bass. Uh, Abby is actually one of our members at the Refuge Church Plant, and she's going to read Matthew 9, verses 9 through 11 for us. If you would stand in honor of reading of God's word. Listen as I read. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. So this passage comes to us early on in Jesus' ministry. Um, he's starting to gain a pretty big following, a big, pretty big crowd wherever he goes. And, and there are some who are even ready to dedicate their whole lives to him and his teachings. They're, they're essentially sending in their applications to become one of his disciples. Now, in a day and a culture like this, uh, to become a disciple of a religious teacher uh, not just anyone could get in. It wasn't just, you know, apply and everyone's accepted. Uh, you had to have some education. You had to have some status, you, maybe even some money. And you had to prove yourself as somebody who was morally worthy of that role. You had to work for it. And even then, the teacher might not call you. Now, at first glance, um, Early on in Jesus' ministry, it looks like Jesus' standards are pretty high, really high. Because just a few verses before this in chapter 8, there's this guy who is called a scribe. And this scribe comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turns him away. It's shocking. Because a scribe in this day, it's kind of like our modern-day equivalent of like a biblical scholar or a seminary professor. Imagine teaching somebody with that many qualifications, that much education, that much status. Imagine turning them away. Yeah, the crowd had to be wondering, like, okay, if Jesus is turning someone like him away, who could possibly measure up to his standards? Who could possibly qualify as one of Jesus' disciples? And so... You can imagine then how confusing it would be when Jesus calls his first disciples just a little time before this, and they were a handful of fishermen. They're not poor, but they're not wealthy either. They have more street smarts than they have book smarts. They're, there was nothing about Jesus' first disciples that gave any indication that they had the education or the skills that were required of being the disciple of a teacher like Jesus. And so Jesus is already turning away scholars and he's calling fishermen. It's confusing. But what happens here in chapter 9, it's not just confusing, it's offensive. Because Jesus sees a man named Matthew who is sitting at a tax booth counting all the money that he's collected and without an interview, without a resume, without a background check or any inve investigation into who this man Matthew was, Jesus just looks at him and says two words, follow me. Now, I wonder if the scribe from chapter 8 was still hanging around. I like to imagine that. What, what was that scribe thinking if he was still there? Jesus, you turned down me, but you called Matthew? Seriously? It's shocking. It's offensive to the people what's happening here. Because not only did Matthew have no special education or skills that qualified him as a disciple, Matthew also had no moral qualifications. He was a sinner, and everyone knew it. Um, Matthew was a tax collector, and, and what that means in this day is that it disqualified him immediately just because of his vocation. If you work for the IRS or if you're a tax don't worry, this is, things have changed, you're good. Uh, but in this day, things were different because at this time, the Jewish people were under a, a pretty oppressive occupation from the Roman Empire, and one of the most common ways that they oppressed the people that they conquered was through heavy taxes, 
But it's, it's even more interesting how they would collect those taxes because the Roman Empire would then recruit tax collectors from among the conquered people. They wanted, the, the, they wanted those people to collect taxes from their own people, like Matthew. And, and these tax collectors would uh, get paid by raising whatever salary they wanted above the normal tax limit, whatever they wanted to collect for themselves they could take. And so to be a tax collector in this day meant that you were consumed with greed to the point that you would take sides with the enemy, consumed with greed that you would betray your own people and extort them for your own benefit. To, to be a tax collector meant that you were the worst of the people in society. And so it, it's not so much that Matthew had committed a sin. We all commit sins, Right? I think people living in this day would have been able to admit that pretty freely. But Matthew was more than that in their eyes. It's not just that he sinned. It was who he was. He is a sinner. It's his identity. He is really the worst of sinners in their eyes. Now, Jesus and Matthew, though, Jesus invites him to spend the whole day with him. Goes to his house. He shares a meal with Matthew, he shares conversation with Matthew. And it wasn't just Jesus and Matthew, just those two. It looks like there was a crowd of tax collectors and other sinners in the room as well. And then I love this, uh, uh, this image of a small group of Pharisees had heard what was going on. And they gather, not in the house, they don't go in to check it out, but they gather at the doorway and just poke their heads in to see what is going on. What could possibly make Jesus want to do this? Because uh, the, the Pharisees, they were, so, they were so offended by this that they thought if they went into the room, it would actually make them unclean. They're horrified, but they're curious too. Because they, they know how amazing Jesus is by this point. They had seen what he'd done. They'd heard what he had been teaching up to that point. They knew he was someone special, and by all accounts, he was more upright, more righteous than any person that they had ever met. And so surely in their minds, someone like Matthew, surely someone like Matthew could never belong to someone like Jesus. You see, the, the popular religious teachings of this day, um, they, they were trying to renew the people's uh, commitment, their dedication to obeying God's commands, his law, which I want to point out, that's a good thing. It is a good thing to want to obey God and his commandments. But the Pharisees, they often took it a couple steps too far. Their teaching was emphasizing the law of God over the mercy of God, even emphasizing it against the mercy of God, and soon developed a culture where the most religiously dedicated people were teaching that if you wanted to belong to God, you had to prove your worth through your obedience. And so it's these people, the religiously educated, the ones with the status the ones with all the qualifications the, and the resumes and the list of all the things that they had done to obey God, they are the ones most offended by Jesus. And I think that's really sad. That the people who had spent their entire lives dedicated to studying God's word were also the ones most offended when they met him face to face. with the sort of condemning culture that Matthew was living in, you know, it's, it's no wonder who he hung around, right? People like himself, other tax collectors and sinners, he wasn't welcome anywhere else. And so he just found belonging wherever he could. They didn't really give him any other choice. A lot of things have changed over the last 2,000 years since these events took place, uh, but not everything. We still live in a culture of religion where it's sometimes communicated one way or another that you have to become before you can really belong. Where you have to prove your worth, where you have to measure up to somebody else's, else's standards before you're really welcomed in to that community. And we're combating that perception in the church today, aren't we? We're, we're, we're combating the perception that the church is like an exclusive club for the holier-than-thous, right? Uh, and we're fighting that, unfortunately, because that's actually what's being communicated by some. 
And sometimes it's in the form of uh, bad teaching and bad doctrine. Maybe it's uh, a sermon that you hear, maybe it's a book that you read, or someone that you see on TV, or maybe it's just the words from a friend who's trying to communicate what they believe God is all about. And maybe, maybe they're communicating that your standing before God depends on how good you are and how many mistakes that you've had in your past. Listen to me, that's a false gospel. That is a false gospel. If our message even slightly resembles the idea that we must live right or believe right in order to be saved, then we're trying to get people to trust in a false gospel that will only ever lead them to their destruction. Because it places all of the hope on us. Not in the God who can save us from us. But you know, more often than not, it's, it's not intentional, it's not explicit, it's, it's actually unintentional, I think, for most of us. It's, it's not what's written in our doctrinal statements or, or the messages that we preach, but rather the way that we treat people or the way that we put up cultural obstacles between uh, God and the people God is trying to reach. Uh, it's the way that we exclude people from this community. Uh, you know, it's possible for you to truly believe and trust in the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation. It's possible to have the best intentions for wanting to reach others with that good news and yet still be bad at communicating that good news because of the way that we live our lives and treat others. And, and there's a few different ways that we can experience this. Um, the, the pastor, Andy Stanley, in his book, Strong and Weak, which I actually noticed we have on our book wall out there, um, if you want to pick it up and read more about it, he put together this helpful chart to explain um, the different ways where we can experience this lack of belonging. If you look up here, um, in that top left quadrant, uh, we, we see the word rejection, which is to be known but not loved. That's the experience of when you're in a community, people know who you are, they know your history, they know where you've been, what you've done, and they reject you because of who you are, because of that past, to be known and not loved. And I know a lot of you have experienced this, uh, whether from friends or family or unfortunately maybe a church family in your past, and you know the sting of those wounds and how long they can hang around. And then we look to the bottom left and you see the word ignored, which Andy Stanley defines as being not known and not loved. And maybe this is the worst of them all, to, to not even be noticed, to not even get the eye contact, to, have, to, to be wishing that somebody would reach out to you, and they never do. To, to be treated as if you're invisible or you don't matter at all. And then in the bottom right, we, we see the one that kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit, right? And maybe it does for you too. This is another way of not feeling like you belong, is actually fitting in. You cannot belong to a community by actually fitting in, which means not known, but loved. Hey, good to see you. How's life? Great, cool. It's nice to see you. I'll see you later. Small talk type of fitting in, where no one truly gets to know you, who you are, or what you're going through. All three of these experiences can leave us in a place where we feel desperate to belong and that feeling never be satisfied. We're going to get to that fourth quadrant in a minute. Uh, but from this chart, you can see that there are a lot of different ways that we can either explicitly or implicitly communicate to people that you have to pretty yourselves up, you have to measure to my standards, you have to prove your worth and hide your flaws in order to, to really belong. The truth is we're all looking for belonging. We're all looking for it somewhere. This is actually how God created us. He made us with this deep inner sense that we should belong to God and to one another. But the reality is, is if that we don't find belonging in God's people, the church as he designed it to be, then we'll find our belonging somewhere else. We'll go find it wherever we can, just like Matthew did. And so it's no wonder when we find people rejecting or walking away from the church and gravitating toward other communities who seemingly offer belonging more freely than we do. And that's true in Cadillac, I think. It's true here in Traverse City, too. It's true in a lot of places. But in the four years that I've lived in Cadillac, I've seen this a lot. Um, when, when I moved there, I met with a Christian leader in town um, who told me 
that Cadillac is a mostly Christian city and that the church, got, the church has got it covered. Um, but after my first year of living there, I, I realized that the narrative that he was presenting to me didn't match what I saw. It wasn't really that accurate. Many of the people that I was meeting and interacting with, they, they didn't look like the people that this person was describing to me. They didn't belong to a church. They didn't seem to know that much about Jesus or his gospel. Now, to be sure, a lot of people that I'm meeting have a vague belief in God. They hope he's on their side. But it seemed like they had uh, no real center of understanding for Jesus and his gospel, the only thing that can truly save them. They've kind of been left with that false gospel of, man, I really hope I measure up and that God accepts me. And so then we crunched the numbers. We looked at census reports, we looked at surveys, and what we found um, actually made my jaw drop when I first saw the number. Uh, We found that um, 64% of people living in our county do not identify as Christian. 64%. Now, maybe you don't have a frame of reference for that. That's the same number as Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington. Two cities that we consider the most post-Christian hostile cities to the gospel in our country. It's the same number. Do you have that image in your mind when you think of a small city in rural northern Michigan? That when you drive down the street, you count one, two, three every time you pass the houses, and every time you count two and three, you can pretty much count on those people not belonging to Jesus? 64%. But like I said, um, Cadillac, I wouldn't consider a necessarily a post-Christian or hostile city. Um, It's not that sort of culture. It's not so much that the teachings of Christianity are the obstacle. They can be an obstacle, but it's not maybe the main one. What actually seems to repel a lot of people in my city is the idea of belonging or identifying with a church. That is the major obstacle, belonging to a church. Because if you feel like you've been rejected or ignored by the church in your past, or if you feel like you just don't fit in right, you're eventually going to grow tired and you're going to try to satisfy your longings and desires for belonging in community wherever you can find it. And that's what I've noticed. That's what a lot of people in Cadillac do. It's not that we're not a relational city. We are. It's not that we're a city that doesn't have community. It's actually a great uh, community-filled city where there are tons of places where you can go find that sense of belonging. But unfortunately, more and more, it's not the church. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not a harsh critic of established churches in Cadillac. Hear that from me. I love our churches in Cadillac. I'm friends with a lot of pastors. I'm part of a ministerial association there where we're trying to partner together and and reach the city together. Um, I love them, and I cheer, with the, cheer them on, and I, and I want to partner with them in the things that we're doing because church plants need established churches, and established church, churches need church plants. This is a temptation and a problem that faces us all, and we're all tasked with addressing. But one of the reasons why we are planting a new church in Cadillac is, is because we looked at our city and we saw thousands upon thousands of people who are starving for what God made them for. And so Justin and I and and the group of members that we've been gathering, we hold on to this hope, really our only hope, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, that it is good, and that it is beautiful when communicated well, and that it can satisfy the longings in people's hearts and heal the wounds that they've suffered in their past. I want to show you a painting. Uh, This painting is wrecking me over the last year. Um, I have looked at this for hours and hours, and maybe it doesn't seem like much to you, but it's it's the story behind the painting that gets me. Um, This is called The Calling of St. Matthew, and it's uh, painted by a guy named Caravaggio, who was an Italian Renaissance artist. Um, And Caravaggio came from what you would consider uh, like a lower middle class family. And he grew up uh, during the bubonic plague 
and the plague killed nearly every single one of his family members. And by the age of 11, he had nowhere, no one left and nowhere else to go, so he, he signed up to become an apprentice uh, under the instruction of a painter because he really had nowhere else to belong to. He had nowhere else to go, and, and so that was his way out. Now, without family, without structure, without a foundation, Caravaggio did not grow up to be a morally upright man. He, he got in a lot of trouble. He, he was a, f- a thief. He was a fighter. He even murdered somebody later in his life. He was sexually promiscuous. By all standards of the day, Caravaggio, he, he was not just sinning. He was a sinner. It was who he was. And he was living in a time where the Roman Catholic Church was, was really pushing this kind of message that the bubonic plague was the fault of people like Caravaggio. That it was their sins, and this was God's wrath against people like Caravaggio. And people like Caravaggio were hopelessly lost. They were beyond the mercy of God. And so see, we're, we're getting what you all deserve and that sort of message, that, that bad teaching, that messed with Caravaggio, as you can imagine. It messed with him his whole life, especially because his brother, um, as he was seeking for a place to belong, he went to the church and became a priest. And Caravaggio was the younger brother, the prodigal son, the failure, the one who couldn't be saved no matter what he did. But even so, throughout his life, Caravaggio, he was fascinated by Jesus and his gospel message. He painted countless pictures of Bible stories uh, uh, that, that communicated the gospel so clearly. And the way that he, he, he depicts Bible stories in his art, it, it was unlike anything that the world had seen up to that point. Paintings, religious paintings especially up to this point, were very bland. They were lifeless. They were like two-dimensional. There, were, there was no story in them. It was just a snapshot. It didn't feel like they were real. But as you can see here, Caravaggio, I mean, look at the way that he, he plays with the light and the dark. That's actually, no one was doing that up to that point. He invented the style of painting. Look at the personality in his characters, the emotion in their eyes and their gestures. Nobody was doing that. For a lot of people, Caravaggio made the Bible come to life for the first time in, in the way that he painted these stories. And, and I love this fact, too, that he, he would even occasionally paint himself in the characters that he identified most with. And usually they were not the good ones. Caravaggio was so good at painting that the Roman Catholic Church, despite their disgust for his lifestyle, they couldn't help but commission his paintings over and over again. And this was one of his earlier ones. Um, the common thought is that the church asked him to paint this kind of as a tribute because the French king, Henry IV, had recently converted from Protestantism to Catholicism, and they wanted Matthew to kind of be a symbol for King Henry. But I think that Caravaggio spun it a different direction. Um, He went far beyond that, in a way that drew priests and tourists from all over Europe just to sit underneath this painting and stare for hours or even days and think about what is the message behind this story in the Bible. So here on the right, you can see uh, Jesus gently pointing his finger out, almost kind of like the God reaching out toward Adam gesture. We can see Jesus pointing toward Matthew. And Matthew sits at the collection table in in the middle of counting the money that he's extorted from, from his own people, surrounded by other sinners like him. Now, now it's um, kind of become a trend today for people to look at paintings like this or other ones during this era and, and criticize it as ethnocentric or racist because why are you painting people from Israel, Palestine area, why are you painting people like that to look white and European? And we wonder, were they just ethnocentric? Were they racist? But Caravaggio wasn't being racist. He was actually trying to be relatable. Because the way in which he painted it, he he dressed people who looked like him. He painted the images of his own friends in some of these characters. Like I said, he would even paint himself in there. He was trying to make the gospel come to life and say, yes, this message is actually true for you too, I think. 
He wanted the gospel to jump off the canvas so that when somebody looked at Matthew at the tax collector table, they could wonder, is this good news for me too? But, but what's interesting is also Jesus' appearance. You notice how he's dressed? He, he's actually dressed kind of lowly too. He's not wearing a crown or royal robes. He's not coming in on a, on a horse or anything that would signify him as this triumphant king. No, he actually comes to them humble and gentle and, and lowly. And he lifts out his gentle finger and he points out to Matthew. Now, you'll see that there's another finger uh, on the left, right? Another pointed finger. And there's actually some debate as to which person is Matthew in this painting. Uh, the, the common thought is that it's the old man. Me? Jesus, you're calling me? Are you sure? Uh, the, the other thought is that the old man is actually pointing to this younger man at the end of the table with his head down, counting the money still, in disbelief that Jesus could possibly be acknowledging him at all. And so he doesn't even raise his head. Either way, though, the pointed finger on the left communicates something too. It's accusation or maybe self-accusation. Believing what the Pharisees were saying about Matthew is actually true. But either way, it goes. The, the finger on the right, Jesus, his finger, it's a finger of grace. And the finger on the left is one of condemnation. And I think for as immoral of a guy as Caravaggio was, he nailed it. He nailed it with his, with his painting. He had unusual clarity about what this story was all about, what the calling of Matthew was all about, that Jesus came to save sinners like him. And so just like the old man in this painting, the real Matthew must have been like dumbfounded with joy that Jesus would call him and invite him to belong to his group of disciples. We, we don't really, when you doubt yourself and condemn yourself that much, we don't even have like a category to put that sort of grace in. And I love the way that Pastor Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says this, the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners. No such embrace is precisely what Jesus loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. This is deeper than saying that Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious because the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of this world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin, not away from it. And we hear that very impulse. We hear that natural instinct in the last verses of our passage. Verse 11. The Pharisees standing at the doorway peek in and wonder aloud, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's where we left off. And Jesus hearing them, verse 12, uh, he knows their hearts and he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. And he, he quotes the prophet Hosea here, Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Listen here, Jesus is not ashamed to be in the company of sinners like Matthew or like you or like me. He sees our sin and he's actually drawn to it so that he can forgive us from it, so, so that he can free us from it. Let that sink in. If you don't believe that right when you hear it, let it sink in and believe it more. Jesus wants to be close to you when you are at your worst. Not 10 minutes later, not a few days from now when you feel really bad about yourself, not weeks when you have stopped talking with him. No, Jesus wants to be close to you while you're sinning. He wants to forgive you right then and there. He wants to free it from you right then and there. Because what qualifies you as a disciple isn't you. It's him. It's his forgiveness. It's his calling. And so when people ask, what is Jesus doing with a guy like Matthew? The answer is that Jesus is inviting Matthew to belong as he begins his journey of discovering what it means to become 
a true follower of God. Jesus invites us to belong as we learn what it is to become. But it's not just Matthew that Jesus is messing with here. It's not just Matthew that Jesus is confronting. He's also trying to get the Pharisees' attention in this passage. Because, you know, it's not that the Pharisees were wrong about Matthew. They weren't wrong in the way that they estimated him. They're actually right. They saw him correctly. Matthew is a sinner. The solution to Matthew's problem is not to say, hey, man, it's okay, don't worry about it, and sweep it under the rug. The the solution is not to ignore Matthew's sin and treat it as if it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Without salvation, he's going to die from this. There's wrath and punishment on the other side. And so it's not that the Pharisees were wrong about Matthew. It's that they were wrong about Jesus. If they knew the true meaning of the scriptures that they dedicated their lives to studying, they wouldn't be so confused at the sight of Jesus calling a guy like Matthew to follow him. Because that's the mission of God. That's the heart of God, to rescue and redeem rebellious people. He's been doing this throughout human history, and he's doing it again at the tax collector's booth. And every single one of the promises that God has made throughout history has given us an expectation of something like this, that God himself to a better world, come to us, make himself gentle and lowly in heart, and would invite us into a better way and save us from it all. The heart of God has always been for the sinner who knows that they need saving. And so when Jesus says, I desire mercy, and not sacrifice. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And and do you know the context of that passage in Hosea 6? You should read it later. Um, God is calling out his own people, the ones who supposedly did belong to him. God is calling them out for their sinful hearts. And he says this, what shall I do with you? What am I going to do with you guys? Your love is just like a morning cloud like a dew that fades away too early. Like Adam, you've broken my covenant and dealt faithlessly with me. So listen up, I want mercy and not your heartless, empty, meaningless obedience. I want the knowledge of God, the love of God, rather than your sacrifices. See, the Pharisees, they are so focused on Matthew's sin that they failed to see the sin that was rooted in their own hearts. They're focused more on the actions of obedience than they are on loving and following after the God that they study so much about. And so to be sure, it's a different type of sin than Matthew's, but it's no worse. It doesn't put them in any more or less position of need. They are on equal ground with Matthew. And so when Jesus says, I came to call the righteous, but, and I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's inviting these Pharisees to see that they've fallen short of the standard too. Their resumes don't meet the standard either. They don't meet the requirements. He's inviting them to see that this calling to belong to God is extended actually to anyone who is willing to admit that, yeah, I need this. That, yeah, I am a broken sinner. That, yeah, I am unworthy. I'm spiritually sick and I need a doctor. And in doing so, Jesus invites these Pharisees into a better mission than they had. He's inviting them to follow and reflect God to other sinners like them, to be the humble messenger who is deeply aware of my own need for the mercy of God and and to be one that deeply longs to see other people receive the same mercy that I've received. A mission where the sick are made well. Uh, A mission where those who have been made well are going to seek after other sick people to see them made well, too. That's where we find true belonging. That's how we create a church that offers true belonging from a common position of need and a deep, deep love for the heart of God. And so listen to me. This good news, it changes everything. If you have spent your life feeling rejected or ignored by the church, or maybe just merely fitting into the church. The good news is that we find our fullest sense of belonging in the love and the mercy of Jesus, because his answer to all the problems is that we are fully known and fully loved. That's what it means to belong, to be fully known 
and fully loved. That is a scary statement at first read. That is a scary statement to be fully known. Really? Every single part of me, even the worst parts, even my worst thoughts and worst actions, to be fully known is a scary thing. But it is a wonderful thing when the response to that is the mercy of God. That creates belonging. That even on the cross, as Jesus hung there with his dying breaths and the crowd that he came to save is standing at the foot of the cross, mocking him, throwing things at him, scorning him, insulting him. Even then, Jesus looked out to the crowd and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. His faithfulness to you will always outrun your faithlessness. His faithfulness to you will always outrun your faithlessness. But it also changes everything in the way that we we function as a church, right? It causes us to ask ourselves, are we living as reflections of this mercy that we're hearing about? Are we messengers of the good news that he's trying to bring, this message of belonging? To be a church that extends the belonging of Christ, you, you can't manufacture that with a program or an event, uh, it's, it's all-consuming. It's all of life. It saturates every part of you. It's really a posture of mercy and grace. And so listen, true, true belonging isn't something that can be accomplished just in one hour on a Sunday morning. To be invited into a place where we can be fully known and fully loved, it takes more than a handshake. It takes more than small, uh, polite small talk. It, it takes more than showing people just your best sides and your best moments. No, it takes humility, maybe even a willingness to be humiliated. Vulnerability, it takes getting lowly like Jesus did with Matthew. It takes the recognition that there is no greater sense of belonging that could possibly fulfill us than finding ourselves in equal need with other brothers and sisters before the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. Now at our church plant, um, we believe that Jesus graciously invites us in to belong to him and to one another as we learn what it is to fully become his disciples, his redeemed children. And it's actually why we named ourselves the Refuge Church. Uh, We we got the name from Psalm 91, which uh, we read as our invitation to worship, as part of our invitation to worship this morning. Um, And in there, we were given one of the Bible's most beautiful descriptions of who God is. He's called our Refuge It's a picture of God's compassion and love for sinners like us. And so uh, when we say we're the refuge church, it's not so much that we are the refuge, but that God is, and we're the ones pointing to him. But as his followers, um, we we want to model his sense of belonging. We, we, we We want to model that compassion and invitation. We want to reflect him in everything we say and do. So it is our prayer that as we encounter people in our community, that they would see us as a refuge as we point to the one and true refuge. But our hope is, is more than just a name, right? It's more than just a cool name. I don't know if it's actually cool. It might be going out of style. Who knows? Um, Our hope is more than just that this would be a cool name for us. We want it to saturate every part of our church plant. And so we're setting up rhythms of our church where it's not just Sunday. It's not just one hour on Sunday where we find our belonging. We believe that Sundays are only part, an important part, but only part of what it means to belong to a church. Because we also know that the importance of creating opportunities for people to go beyond the handshake and the small talk. And so during the week, we we will have a completely different type of community where we meet in one another's houses, where we open up our homes and we open up our lives with one another and to our neighbors. We want to create this place where both believers and seekers and skeptics can, can be known and be loved as we learn what it is to become followers of Jesus. And, and so we know that not everyone is going to feel comfortable uh, with their first encounter with the church being an invitation to go to Sunday morning worship, right? Let's face it, church is kind of weird, yeah? It, it's awkward if this isn't somewhere that you've grown up in. And so some people may have no problem accepting an invite to a backyard barbecue or a lake party. And others 
they might actually prefer to blend in with the crowd. And the idea of being known in a smaller group, in a home, sharing meals together, that terrifies them. They're not sure if we'll respond with love and with grace. Uh, we, we believe that both are good, that both are necessary for someone to feel the full belonging of what God is inviting us into through the church. And we hope that whichever entry point that people choose as they start to seek out the Refuge Church in Cadillac, that whether it's in an auditorium or in a living room, that one would flow into the other because that's where we find satisfaction for the longings that God has placed in our heart. But more than that, um, we're praying that God would create in us a humble posture, recognizing that no one comes to Jesus as ready-made disciples. Not the newbie, not the lead pastor. None of us come to Jesus as ready-made disciples, and we want to model that posture to our community. We want the posture of pointed fingers that we saw in Caravaggio's painting. In one sense, our first response being like, seriously, Jesus, me? Of all people, you want me? And to respond to that grace with dumbfounded joy, but we also want the posture of Jesus with a gentle pointed finger saying, yes, yes, you. You're invited too. We want that sort of humility, that gentleness, that lowliness that Jesus has called us in. And so the Refuge Church exists in part to be a place where people can belong as they learn what it is to become a follower of Jesus. Friends, I'm really excited. Um, I'm really excited about our church plan and its mission to Cadillac. Um, but the true thing that we celebrate here this morning is not the launching of a new church. It's the mercy of Jesus Christ that makes it all possible. It's the mercy of one who knows us fully yet loves us fully. The mercy of one who does not cringe at reaching out to touch us dirty sinners, but whose deepest impulse whose most natural instinct is to run toward us with his mercy and forgiveness. May we all find our belonging under the refuge of God's wings. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that uh, you soften our hearts, that if we find ourselves in the position of the Pharisees wondering, really, them? that you would cause us to look at our own hearts and, and begin to wonder, how, how could this be that Jesus Christ would die for me? And if we're feeling more like Matthew as we hear this story, God, I pray that you would blow our minds, cause us to drop our jaws in wonder and awe that the answer is yes, you. Yes, I'm calling you. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of the love and mercy that is in your heart for worthless sinners like us. Jesus, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen.